Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from leading experts Amir Zedan, Sanam Logavi, Rami Komrokshi and Somadeb Bol, who discuss recent updates in the ICC and WHO classifications for MDS and how these may impact clinical practice. Hi everyone, welcome to MDS sessions of BJM Onk. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, my name is Amr Zaidan from Yale University and it's really a pleasure to have uh, three of my esteemed colleagues and uh, friends. All of them are experts in myelodysplastic syndromes. And today we will be talking about the classifications updates in particular uh, in myelodysplastic uh, syndromes and how is that going to impact practice day to day. So it's a pleasure to be joined by Dr. Sanam Logavi from the MD Anderson uh, Group, as well as Dr. Rami Komrogji from Moffitt Cancer Center and Dr. Somde Bol uh, from the Moffitt Cancer Center. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Sanam, maybe we can start by talking about uh, the evolution of uh, the, uh, the classification systems uh, from a HEPAT perspective in myeloid malignancies in general, but in particular MDS, uh, just to give a perspective to people uh, the situation of having two different classifications is somewhat novel because compared to lymphoma, where I think for many years they used to have three different classifications and um, somewhat used to it. In, in the myeloid community, for a long time, we only had the FAB and then the WHO. So we are somewhat in a, in a new era for us. So maybe you can walk us through the evolution of uh, those classifications and then uh, maybe discuss um, the major changes in, in the 2022 WHO and ICC classifications. Of course. So hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, this is, you know, without, without dating myself and maybe <laughs> aging myself, uh, I would say that, like you said, you know, the really the French American British or the FAB system uh, was for the longest time what was used. Um, essentially based on, you know, with different blast percentages, but essentially based on blast percentages for the distinction of refractory anemia, which was, which was you know, what we used to call MDS, uh, from refractory anemia with excess blasts, from refractory anemia with excess blasts and transformation, and then acute myeloid leukemia. And of course, you know, a lot of FAB, while it was morphologically defined, right, we had the, it was defined by differentiation, AML was defined by differentiation, but if you think about it, there is a, you know, phenotype or the morphology was a manifestation of the genotypic underpinnings of disease, right? So if you go back and think about it now, the monoblastic leukemias, the M5 leukemias were probably enriched for the MLL or KMT2A rearranged cases. The acute myelomonocytic leukemias were probably enriched for NPM1 mutated cases. Of course, M3, everyone knows was, you know, um, the APL or acute promyelocytic leukemia, and then inversion 16 was the AML M4 with EO. So a lot of it was genetically linked or defined, but it wasn't per se a genetic classification, um, you know, how we recognize genetic classification now. So in 2001, the WHO, um, came out with its first classification. Uh, so we the, the initial publication, the hematolymphoid book or the blue book was published. Uh, there was a second iteration. Um, I believe that was published in 2000. 
I don't know which one, the, when the second one came out actually, but there was a second iteration that came out 2016. We had an update to the 2008 version of the WHO. And in 2016, you'll notice that the WHO starts becoming much more genetically defined. This is now where the mutations make it into the classification. Let's say AML with NPM1 becomes a provisional entity, right? AML with mutated FLT3 actually becomes a uh, an entity. I think there is a lot of overlap between the two systems because, you know, essentially the two systems are based on the same data, right? You would hope that, you know, that, you know, people aren't making up entities, really. They're using data to back up the classification. So there is a lot of overlap, but I think there are subtle um, yet imp clinically important differences in the two classification systems in terms of how clinicians utilize these classification systems to treat patients. And, you know, I think for, for us as hematopathologists, it's important to recognize that our care of the patient doesn't really end with our report, right? Your, your report is going to be what dictates really eligibility for a clinical trial. Your report is going to be what dictates whether or not a patient can get reimbursed for a particular drug. So I think there are several connotations and several downstream effects uh, to having two classifications that is definitely not ideal. So I hope that at some point we can unify this classification and have one classification that benefits the entire patient population. Uh, but for now, we do have two classifications and maybe, you know, we can uh, review them in details and see what we can learn today. Yeah, that's that's a great overview. Uh, so maybe Sanam, you can uh, show us some of the main highlights of the 2022 classifications. Uh, a lot of our audience might not be as super specialized in uh, like the rest of us. So maybe focusing on the major um, kind of changes uh, in a big picture. Um, okay, so here's, um, as I said, in 2022, uh, the two classifications were published. The summary of the WHO, the 2022 version or the fifth edition of the WHO was published in the Journal of Leukemia and the uh, ICC or the International Consensus Classification, which is now a novel classification system, uh, was published earlier that year in June of 2022 in blood. So both of these um, papers are available um, for reference for anyone that is interested. The beta version of the WHO book is online and I've listed here the website for you where you can access this. Um, there is a subscription fee, but I think you get uh, access to all of these, these books including the other systems for anyone that's interested in the other systems. Uh, but essentially the, the beta version of the book is still open for comments. So if you should, you know, so feel inclined to make a comment on any of the entities, I think the editors actually do receive these comments. So um, I really wish, you know, want to provide an overview of um, the concept of these new classifications. And it's, if you look at the, the, First of all, precursor lesions have been um, introduced in the classification system, and these are the clonal hematopoiesis and CHIP and CCUS entities, so CCUS being clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance. And essentially, this is now, you know, we had recognized this as a field for a while that um, CHIP exists, clonal hematopoiesis exists, and it is a precursor lesion to myeloid malignancies, although, you know, very important to recognize that not everybody with clonal hematopoiesis gets a myeloid malignancy 
In fact, a very small fraction of people actually get a myeloid malignancy. But again, it's now formally recognized as a entity uh, in the WHO book, as well as in the international classification system or consensus classification system. Now, uh, what is very important is that um, while the border between these clonal cytopenias and MDS is really, um, the distinction is made using dysplasia, and that is 10% dysplasia in any cell lineage, including the granulocytic, erythroid, or megakaryocytic uh, series. The blast count that we were using previously really to distinguish MDS from AML has now become much less relevant because you'll see that in the AML category, a lot of entities are now genetically defined. So now we have genetically defining AML entities. And this includes, you know, before, as we said, we had the acute promyelocytic leukemia, we had the core binding factor leukemias where the blast count was not relevant. You could make a diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia in the presence of these genetic abnormalities, regardless of the blast count. So now this, this broad category of genetically defined AMLs has kind of expanded, really making the blast count less relevant, but you'll see that there's some subtle differences in the blast count percentage that we use. Um, all right, so I'm gonna start with the updated classification um, for MDS and the WHO. So there's two broad categories. One is MDS with genetically defined abnormalities. And under this category, first of all, this category trumps the other category, which is the MDS that is morphologically defined. And under this category, you have MDS um, with deletion, isolated deletion 5Q. The name here is a little bit misleading because despite the isolated isolated being in the you know terminology and in the name, you actually allow up to one additional cytogenetic abnormality in this category um, unless it's a deletion of seven, chromosome seven, so monosomy seven, or deletion of the long arm of chromosome seven, which is del7q, because obviously those cases have very bad prognosis. And so you don't want to lump those with isolated del5q, which is supposed to be a better prognostic category. And then you have MDS with low blast count and SF3B1 mutation. Again, recognizing that this is a distinct group of myelodysplastic syndromes uh, with SF3B1 mutations and ring sideroblasts. Now, one of the, um, the subtle differences between ICC and uh, um, a separate entity as a sub-entity of this, and that is MDS cases with increased ring sideroblasts, meaning more than 15% ring sideroblasts, even if they don't have an SF3B1 mutation. And and the reason for that is, you know, we had known uh, from the results of the Lispatercept trials that patients with ring sideroblasts, even if they don't have an SF3B1 mutation, they respond to Lispatercept. So I think this category was added here to allow for these patients to get treated because you don't want to bury the ring sideroblast part in, you know, somewhere in the text of your report where nobody sees it, right? You want to put that in the diagnosis so that the clinician knows that this patient may actually respond to Lispatercept. And then um, obviously here you cannot have deletion 5Q, chromosome 7 abnormalities, or a complex karyotype because those categories would trump SF3B1. And then you have the novel entity of MDS with biallelic inactivation of TP53. And I'll talk 
to this a little bit more in detail. But essentially here you have amyloidysplastic syndrome that has loss of both functional copies of TP53, either through multiple mutations or a mutation and a deletion of the wild type copy or a mutation and copy neutral loss of heterozygosity of the other copy. And then if you don't fit into any of these categories, you're left with the morphologically defined entities. And here we have MDS with low blasts and the percentage for low blasts, the cutoff in the bone marrow is 5% and in the peripheral blood 2%. You have hypoplastic MDS, which is defined as a myelodysplastic syndrome that has an age-adjusted cellularity of less than 25% of what would be normal. And then MDS with increased blasts is broken up into category two categories. One is MDS with increased blast one, and the percentages of the blast are the same as they used to be before. And then MDS with increased blast two, again, same percentages, or if you have hour rots. And again, important here to note that the WHO um, recognizes that these cases may be treated as AML should the treating clinician decide that this patient is better off being treated as AML. Uh, and then MDS with fibrosis, again, uh, you know, it's recognized as a distinct entity, but I do want to highlight that the majority of cases with MDS with fibrosis actually do have TP53 mutations and biallelic loss. So that category would trump this category. So this, this category only qualifies for the cases that don't have a, a TP53 mutation. And then morphologic dysplasia is a qualifier. Remember, we used to say in the previous classification, we used to make a distinction between unilinear lineage dysplasia and multi-lineage dysplasia, and that has been omitted from the WHO classification. The ICC classification is very similar. Um, there are some subtle differences. As I said, again, you know, the ICC breaks MDS down to morphologically defined and genetically defined. The genetically defined MDS del 5Q is essentially the same. There's no difference in classification between the two systems. Uh, the ICC restricts MDS with mutated SF3B1 to cases that have the mutation. So if you have increased ring sideroblast, but you don't have an SF3B1 mutation, you would be um, in under ICC, you would be um, subclassified as MDS NOS, right? And then uh, obviously you can't have an isolated deletion 5Q or minus seven. And here they require an SF3B1 uh, mutation have a VAF of 10% or greater, and you cannot have mutations in TP53 or RUNCS1. MDS with mutated TP53 is essentially the equivalent of the biallelic inactivation. Here you require multi-hit TP53 alterations. And then if you don't uh, meet any of these categories, then you're left with the morphologically defined. Uh, here note that the hypoplastic MDS and the MDS with fibrosis that are defined in the WHO fall under the NOS category. Uh, but the ICC does actually make a distinction between single lineage dysplasia and multi-lineage lineage dysplasia, which I think some will talk about. And, you know, it, it is apparent from some studies that the, the degree of dysplasia may actually still have some prognostic uh, implications. And then MDS with excess blasts is, um, you know, a little bit different from the WHO because you'll notice the threshold of blast percentages here is different. So you only qualify for MDS up to 9% blast in peripheral blood and bone marrow. 
once you reach or pass the threshold of 10%, you're into this novel category, which is called MDS slash AML. Again, giving the clinician some leeway to treat the patient as MDS or AML if they see fit. And you know, to, to fit into this category, you cannot have any of the AML-defining genetic abnormalities, which are the translocations, NPM1 mutation, um, and then CBPA mutation for the WHO and TP53. Um, so any questions about the classification or can I clarify anything? Thank you so much, Tana. <clears throat> this was um, very helpful. And um, I think um, from a community practice point of view or many of the physicians who don't see patients in a, in a large center with a very specialized impact, um, it's not fully clear to us yet how this is going to be reported. Are people going to report using the two different uh, schema or is it going to fall on the on the physician to kind of decide based on the description how to, uh, to classify the patient. But, uh, you know, I think some of the categories such as MDS with fibrosis in one classification being reported as MDS with excess plus in the other, or um, uh, as you said, MDS ring syndroplast. So I think because of all of these um, reasons, uh, there was an effort uh, initiated by the Moffitt group by Dr. Komrogji um, mentoring uh, Dr. Somdeb, and eventually this expanded under the International Consortium for MDS to try to compare, first validate the two systems uh, in terms of their prognosis, but also to compare um, the differences. And eventually the goal is to try to come up with a roadmap so that we can go back to having one system, which I think is, uh, is something that everybody wants. So maybe, uh, uh, Dr. Paul, you can go over... Um, the, the main highlights of your uh, presentation that was an oral in, in ASH 2022. Yeah, glad to be part of the panel today and happy to discuss our findings, which as Dr. Zaidan mentioned, we presented in ASH recently concluded. So what we tried to do is we looked into our database, institutional database at Moffitt Cancer Center, um, and we, um, we took all the cases with confirmed diagnosis of MDS. Uh, by WHO 2016 criteria, which Dr. Logavi went over uh, with available NGS results at diagnosis. And then we reclassified those cases by WHO 2022 and ICC 2022 proposed criteria, which we just went over. We uh, we defined as a TP53 mutated case to be multi-hit if they had a variant allele frequency of 50% or more, if they had two different TP53 mutation, or they had one mutation, but they had uh, additional 17P deletion, which we check usually in karyotype and FISH analysis. We had a little over 2,000 patients who were molecularly annotated in this study with a median follow-up duration about five years. Here you can see in the table, we, uh, we have summarized the median estimated median leukemia-free survival and overall survival for all the subgroups, MDS subgroups by WHO 2022. The thing I would like to highlight is as we reviewed uh, and consistent with the previous literature, MDS with SF3B1 had the best outcome of all subgroups with a median overall survival of a little over 100 months, uh, whereas MDS with biallelic TP53 inactivation uh, by WHO had the worst outcome of all as designated by the red curve here with a median overall survival of only 13 months. 
Then when we looked into the ICC 2022 classification subgroups, uh, there are some subtle differences as we reviewed between WHO and ICC. So ICC, SF3B1 subgroup, had a little better overall survival, but overall still a lot uh, improved compared to other subgroups similar to WHO. And T P fifty three mutated subgroups, be it MDS with T P fifty three or MDS AML with T P fifty three in ICC, which required a blast count of ten percent or more, um, had the worst outcome of all. With MDS AML with T P fifty three having the median overall survival of less than a year, as you can see here. Then we reviewed that WHO had uh, had provision to call someone uh, even with increased ring blast without a sub one mutation as as a you know as a designated entity, but ICC did not. So in our cohort, at least when we compared this subgroup who did not have an sf one mutation and had increased blast ring blast you know they had similar outcomes compared to other low blast subgroups, as you can see here. MDS with multilineage dysplasia had worse outcome, uh, leukemia FC survival and overall survival compared to single lineage dysplasia. As you saw that ICC recognized it as separate entities, but WHO did not. But it seemed to matter in terms of outcome in our data set. Then we try to look at the blast cutoff. We know, you know, we have some cutoff at 5%, 5 to 9% in WH is called MDS with increased blast one. Uh, so when we compare them to non-molecularly defined low blast patients, like patients who did not fall into SF3V1 or T53 mutated categories, uh, when we compared MDS with IB1 had a worse uh, liquidity survival and overall survival compared to low blast subgroups. Then we looked at uh, blast count cutoff of 10%. So 10 to 19% patients, uh, uh, patients with blast count of 10 to 19%, they had a similar overall survival, although worse leukemia survival, but similar overall survival, as you can see the curves overlapping here compared to uh, those with 5 to 9% blast in our patients. WHO, you saw a designated category had uh, with, with MDS with fibrosis in the increased blast uh, patients. In our data set, MDS with fibrosis had a worse leukemia-free survival and overall survival compared to MDS with increased blast. Uh, we talked about this multi-hit TP53. Usually when you have two different hits, meaning one two mutation or one mutation with another 7P deletion, uh, usually that carries worse prognosis. We try to make a sense of how it uh, you know how it um, comes across when we look at it across the different blast subgroups. You can clearly see when the blast cutoff, uh, blast count crosses 5%, the outcomes are generally a lot worse. So to conclude, both WHO and ICC classification systems, we conclude that they have room for improvement. Molecularly defined entities like SF3B1, DEL5Q, and TP53, they are clearly unique. And TP53 mutation in both classification predicted the most dismal leukemia survival and overall survival. And uh, multi-hit TP53 state, of course, carried, uh, it was an independent predictor of survival. Uh, survival of MDS with Lingsidoroblast, SF3B1 wild type, was similar to low blast subgroups, and MLD had worse outcome than single lineage dysplasia. 
A plus kind of 5% cutoff correlated better with overall survival in uh, than 10% in our cohort. However, we're trying to still decide on precise plus cutoff and there are some collaborations we're trying to put together to answer that question. Uh, grade two or three fibrosis in increased blast subgroup carried a worse prognosis. And as I said, validation in a multi-center data set is ongoing to further support our findings. So with all this knowledge generated from this data set and also from existing literature, we propose this unified approach to classification in MDS, um, considering inc incorporating the prognostically significant subgroups in BOM from both WHO and ICC. Uh, so in a patient with a diagnosis of MDS, I think we should look at the presence of TP53 mutation, whether this is multi-hit or single hit, and accordingly classify them. If that is not present, then we should look at the blast count. In our data set, 5% made more sense. So so uh, as, as prognostically, so 5% or more, we look at fibrosis grade. If that is two or more, we call it MDS with fibrosis. If that is not present, then we call them MDS with in excess blast, which can be further subdivided in EB1 and EB2. Uh, less than 5% uh, blast count patients can be further looked at for presence of deletion 5Q, SF3B1 mutation. Hyperplastic uh, marrow. Um, if none of them are present, then they should be called MDS with low blast, which can be further subdivided based on number of dysplastic lineages in bone marrow to MDS single lineage dysplasia and multi lineage dysplasia. Thank you so much, and happy to take any questions you have. Yeah, thank, <clears throat> thank you. Excellent uh, presentation, and I, I do think this hopefully. Um, this and similar efforts and hopefully larger multicenter efforts will provide um, a roadmap to try to harmonize things on an evidence-based fashion rather than just um, expert opinion. But of course, that's going to take some time to happen. And until it happens, we have to deal with uh, two different uh, classification uh, systems. And um, Rami, I want to take your uh, insights into two specific aspects. One is what are the downstream implications, um, both in terms of the clinical care, but also from a clinical trial perspective, registry, other aspects that could be impacted when you have two different uh, classifications uh, in which uh, there is not one that is uniformly adopted. And the second aspect, since we are going to have to deal with this day-to-day -day in the clinic, um, how are you going to navigate uh, discussions with the patients and patients? Um, uh, kind of making sure that there is no confusion and aligning your clinical practice with the treatment decisions. Absolutely. Thank you, Amr. So I think first, uh, thank you, Sanam and Sam. They set the stage perfect. Uh, I think my part is to think philosophically how to <laughs> take this to practice. And uh, I think the first point to make is like we really mix a lot between classification and prognostication tools. And that's even mixed in even drug approvals. Like you find drugs approved for higher risk MDS based on the IPSS historically. We even don't have the revised IPSS um, maybe recently. So a, a classification is really a reflection to the biology. And as Sanam mentioned, like even 30 or 40 years ago, those entities that we saw under the microscope correlated with some biology or like mutations that we know about. So the classification should be really unique based on biology. The first important thing of the classification is making the diagnosis because obviously that's very crucial for you know treating the patients, the reimbursement, all that stuff. And I think you know that's one important thing. Then the second thing is putting the patients into a groups that are homogeneous. Now, 
not all the time a classification system have to be the perfect prognostic system because obviously there are other variables you know you are looking at you know the cytopenias their depth probably the blast percentage does matter as a continuous variable it's not like you know uh, groups but we try to make it more homogeneous groups uh, and, and so forth i think you know obviously the, the third thing to think of a classification is how generalizable is this classification so like we are here making leap of faith that everybody has access to genetic data and information and probably that's probably less than 10% of the places in the whole world. Uh, so like to the point that Sanam made, like, you know, if you have MDS with a ring blast, like, yes, maybe the ring blast without SF3B1 have less better outcome or inferior outcome to SF3B1. But the reality is if you see a ring blast on a bone marrow, you probably have 80, 85% chance of having the SF3B1. So in a place where there is no access to genetic data, I think you have to make that assumption or treat the patients based on that because that's important. Uh, then obviously think that we, you and I discussed, like obviously in ring blast, if you have molecular access and you don't have the SF3B1, make sure it's for example, not a nutritional deficiency, like copper deficiency that's mimicking MDS. That's what we see on our side. Same thing even when it comes to P53, sometimes you could do immunohistochemistry and there is some good correlation there. Or if you have a complex karyotype, you can make that assumption. So, so we have to think of like how generalizable, how can we get by a little bit without having access to complete genetic information. Now, how to translate this in practice? I think from clinical trials down the road, we really have to focus a little bit on more homogeneous group. Part of, unfortunately, our failure developing drugs is we just took MDS in general and sometimes are saying higher risk or lower risk, and we've not been able to really you know, show benefit. So I think, for example, the molecularly defined groups, probably those should be in different trials alone. Like if you have MDS with SF3B1, uh, you know, if you have MDS with deletion 5Q or a biallelic P53, I think those should be in separate trials. Um, and in terms of how to use this in practice, that's also like a dilemma. So I think still, obviously, the prognostication using tools like the IPSS, IPSSR, or IPSSM are going to be important on deciding, you know, the only curative option for patients, which is allogeneic stem cell transplant. So if patients have high risk of disease, or in another word, that, you know, a, a mortality expected from the disease in the coming couple of years, then you are going to think of transplant upfront for those patients. Now, you know, in, in terms of management, like I think the cutoff of the blast is a little bit tricky. And in a way, it could be helpful that you start including those patients in AML trials. You start having access of drugs approved for AML in somebody that has like 19% blast that often the insurance will deny it because of not meeting the AML. Well, probably if you count twice, you could get to 21 and 19. Uh, so, so it can have that, but it also will create the anxiety for some patients because like obviously AML always have this, you know, more serious disease. MDS sometimes is not even presented to patients as a type of a blood cancer. So it creates some dilemma, but it may allow some access. And how to include those on trials, I think is, is very hard. I, I try to simplify things in my mind. I try to think of like, I think the MPN people have it nicely done. Like you have chronic MPN, so we have like almost chronic MDS, the blasts are not increased. 
you have an accelerated MDS. I don't know what exactly the cutoff of the blast are, but let's say five to 19. And then you have a blast phase MDS that basically a secondary AML or, or gun into AML. So I think that's how I think of it. And it's definitely gonna evolve. We, you alluded a little bit also to the difficulty and we just had those discussions even internally. Like how is the hematopathologist gonna sign this without access to the NGS? Most of the places in the country don't get access or information from the NGS before 10 days, 14 days, the best case scenario. And our hempath people sign, you know, 40, 50 reports of those per day. If they are gonna come back and amend the information when the data comes, it's it's impossible to do. Uh, so we're having, having those discussions to your point, it's just like a practical point. And you have to think of this in the community practice, how this is gonna happen. So we have to think of also some of those practicality, like you need to get the diagnosis out, you, you know, the, the physicians need to have information uh, and then act on it. So I, I think in summary, it's going to evolve. I think definitely we need a unified criteria for, you know, classification. Classification should be based on biology and, and identifying groups. I think in clinical trials, we start separating some of those clearly very unique groups out. And then in, in you know, practice, I, I think, you know, the line between MDS and AML and access to drugs, uh, we should think of. The last thing is we didn't talk much about is really introducing the pre-MDS conditions, which I think is important because those are existing. Uh, it's challenging. So like clinical cytopenia of unknown significance that are patients that need treatment, recognizing the chip and starting to think of prevention strategies for the patients that are higher risk are all important uh, aspects. Yeah, thank you so much, Rami. This is <clears throat> very comprehensive. Um, like just thinking about this again from a practical point of view, Sanam, as people try to figure out in the community. So I have talking to colleagues, um, I have heard three general directions. Some people are talking about just adopting one of the two systems in their institution and putting the reports according to the WHO, the ICC. I heard other people talking about having the two different systems on the same report saying that this is what the patient has according to the WHO and this is what they have according to the ICC. And then the last uh, group, which uh, Rami also mentioned a little bit before the discussion, is just putting it descriptively, you know, excess plus, whatever, and then the physician will have to kind of integrate the molecular data and come up with the diagnosis. Clearly, I think in a community setting, I think this is a, a challenging task to ask, uh, you know, kind of physicians to, to do this integration and i wonder i'm sure these discussions are you know you guys are having um as hematopathologists and i wonder if, um has been like, like official guidance uh, from the societies and how do you uh, how do you envision this or is this going to be up to each individual institution to decide yeah um i mean i think it's this is a very difficult question right so I'll give you my personal philosophy first, and then I'll tell you what's, you know, what the guidance is. You know, I think the more I think about this, and this may actually apply more to acute myeloid leukemia than it does to myelodysplastic syndromes. But I think, you know, my morphologic diagnosis really matters less and less as we learn more about the genetics. In fact, the clinicians at my institution won't enroll a patient on the clinical trial without knowing the genetics. 
right? So they don't care what I say morphologically. If I call this AML with, you know, however many percent loss, if it has a TP53 mutation, that's what they want to know. They want to know if it has an NPM1 mutation. They want to know if it's a core binding factor leukemia. Really, that's what determines the therapy. So I think that I don't um, really feel the need uh, to, to like shove my diagnosis into one box and then be proven wrong by the by the genetics later. So I really like, you know, the approach that Rami was also, um, I guess, advocating for is that I think, and I really want to see our classifications go toward this, saying that this is a myeloid neoplasm, this is the number of blasts, and these are the genetics, right? Now, in terms of, I think, the uh, generating comprehensive reports, I really do think that the um, that burden should be on the hematopathologist. I don't think that the treating physicians should be looking for, um, you know, the different parts of the ancillary studies and trying to piecemeal things together, particularly because, you know, we think about our centers where everything is done at one place, but a lot of the times it won't be, you know, done at one place. And it may, you know, your lab may be sourcing out its NGS to some other place, sourcing out the fish to some other place. So I really think there should be a comprehensive report that integrates everything together and gives the treating physician the information that they need to treat this patient appropriately. That being said, I also agree that, you know, with the way we work right now and with the number of cases that I'm looking at every day, it's physically impossible for me to go back and make an addendum or an amendment report on everything to do this. But I do think that, you know, we have tools and we have resources to do this. Why not use, and you know, I don't know how to do this, but I'm sure that there are engineers that can come and do this, you know, write a code and do this in Epic where everything gets, you know, together and is, you know, one comprehensive report is generated. So why are we not leveraging AI to do something as easy as this for us to essentially just get everything and you know generate a comprehensive report i suspect that it's probably not that hard but we need to put the resources and you know talk to the right administrators in our hospitals to help us do this um and in fact i know some places actually have full-time employees that do this that are essentially like putting out together putting you know together all of these uh reports and then a physician is signing off on it no, that's I, I think clearly the di direction in the future is to try to um, do more of this machine learning and artificial intelligence. And it, probably I would not be surprised if some people are already looking at some of those uh, models, and we're probably going to see some of them in the next in the next uh, few years. Uh, so in the last few minutes we have remaining, I want to see if any of you have any um, departing thoughts on. On my end, kind of to try to finish on a positive note, is that I, I think both groups um, have heard it, I think, very clearly from, from the community that everybody wants a harmonized system. And I think they are ongoing efforts to try to do that. I, I do think the initiative that uh, Dr. Paul outlined and hopefully other multi-center validations could provide some evidence uh, kind of uh, on how to do this in a way that that makes um, more sense. And um, I do think it's important that we don't end up in a situation where we have, um, you know, different, uh, we have already different therapies between kind of the developed world and uh, countries with limited resources. And uh, I, I would be concerned to kind of take that another step with, uh, you know, with even the classifications where we have classifications that only apply to countries where you can next, get next gen sequencing or get them within 
two, three days, you know, uh, compared to, to the rest of the world. Because I think that's going to limit our ability to understand, uh, you know, the differences between uh, the epidemiology, the impact of different treatments, etc. So I do think morphology um, hopefully will continue to be uh, a big part of how we define things. But maybe I can go around, uh, start with you, Rami, for any departing final thoughts. Uh, I think I agree. Like, I think you summed it nicely. And, you know, I think Sana and like some provided good, you know, highlights of those. I, I think the message again, like we need uniform classification. And in reality, also at the, at the end, we need better treatments for our patients. So I think when we get treatments that are effective, sometimes they will change how we prognosticate things, how we classify things. Uh, but I think the most important is really to, not clump all MDS as one disease. This is a spectrum clearly and think of designing clinical trials in that way. Thank you. So my, I think your presentation was like the start of a nice effort. And I know there are multiple ongoing analyses that are happening, hopefully to kind of inform those uh, discussions that we just mentioned. Maybe you wanna, in your departing thoughts, tell us a little bit about the subsequent analysis that are being uh, hopefully planned out of this uh, effort. Yeah, sure. So we we uh, you know formed a collaboration with an Italian group uh, to try and see, and they have a they have a large number of patients. So we are kind of combining our databases uh, to try and answer some of those uh, questions related to subtle differences that Dr. Logavi reviewed between the two classifications. Try to see if we really need those complexities, uh, or can we get rid of unnecessary complexities, which would hopefully serve the uh, purpose that you outlined, you and Dr. Kamaroji, that, you know, more resource-limited settings or even quicker uh, assessment of quicker classification, uh, it does, you know, do we really need to do those additional co-mutations um, in an SFTB1 mutation? How much how much does that matter? So some some questions of that kind uh, we're trying to answer. And also within TP53 mutated group, at least clearly in our data set, we saw more than 5%. It did not really matter much whether you have one TP53 versus two. Is that true in multi-center data set or not? I think that's an important thing because some of those additional informations are not readily available in some centers. So definitely looking forward to those data. And also as a general, I think we, you know, you mentioned it at the beginning, our, our biggest responsibility or liabilities to our patients. So uh, I think patient education resources across platforms needs to be updated to reflect some of these changes happening in the field as well, because a lot of the patients that we treat, they read up and they come and, uh, you know, uh, in clinic uh, asking questions so that they can get their questions answered when they're uh, meeting their clinician in clinic as well. Yeah, thank you. That's very well said. Uh, Sanam, any final thoughts? No, I mean, same. Thank you all for your uh, for your thoughts. I think this has been a greatly helpful session for me as well. I do want to emphasize one point for maybe the hematopathologists listening to this and the trainees. I think, you know, even though our classification systems are becoming more and more complex and sophisticated and, you know, you need all of these sophisticated tools, I think it's really important to still recognize that, you know, Again, going back to the FAB comment that I made in the beginning, a lot of these genetic abnormalities, we can actually 
actually recognize morphologically. And there are surrogate markers that we can use to recognize some of these entities, including IHC stains, including the morphology of the blast, including the presence of fibrosis. So I really want to emphasize and say, you know, don't discount the morphology, don't discount the traditional teaching, because there's still a lot of value in that. And I think we can really contribute to patient care as good morphologists, as good pathologists, and not only leave everything to sequencing. Um, so that would be my message for everyone. No, and I fully agree with that. And actually, um, kind of just supporting what you just mentioned, I, I kept highlighting this in my presentations on the validation of the molecular IPSS, you know, when they compared to the, the revised IPSS and the C index went from 0 0.74 to 0 0.81, which highlights what you and Rami have mentioned is that, you know, the, the morphologic data, the, you know, the cytogenetics, uh, the blood counts, the plasma count, all of these, I think, convey very important information. And while molecular integration certainly can improve or does improve the prognosis and the classification schema, uh, I still think the bulk of the data is already there. So I, I think people should feel empowered to act a lot based on uh, on what we have. So thank you so much. This was a fantastic uh, discussion, and uh, I look forward to having you in some subsequent editions of uh, BGM on Cambia sessions. Thank you so much. Thank you for thank having you. us. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and subscribe to VJHemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time!